Welcome to the Compliance Perspectives Podcast. I'm Adam Turtletow from the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics and Healthcare Compliance Association. Joining us today from Fort Lauderdale is Gabe Imperato. Gabe's a member of our board and a partner at the firm Nelson Mullins and everyone's go-to guy when it comes to healthcare compliance issues. Gabe, first, thanks for taking the time away from your day to talk to us. Happy to do so, Adam. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, my pleasure. Now, we're going to talk today about the annual report of the Department of Health and Human Services and Justice Healthcare Fraud and Abuse Control Program, which was mm-hmm. for fiscal year 2021. Um, Gabe, looking through the report, it seemed, at least to me, that one key takeaway is to expect coordinated enforcement activities by not just OIG, but also DOJ. Um, yeah. what, what does that mean for compliance programs? Well, actually, the uh, coordination of enforcement activities not not only includes um, DOJ and its criminal or civil components and OIG and and its uh, administrative enforcement folks, but but also CMS, which brings in whatever activity their contractors are engaged in. And, And I think what it means for compliance professionals uh, this coordination uh, does involve a fairly systemic review by these uh, constituent agencies of certain um, compliance matters that are brought to their attention, compliance enforcement matters that are brought to their attention, and and for them to decide and coordinate where the matter would be best uh, uh, addressed as an, an enforcement and how it should be best addressed as an enforcement matter if it should be addressed as an enforcement matter. And and what I think it means for compliance professionals is is that, you know, if you're involved in a contractor action, an audit or a request from a contractor, let alone a subpoena from the Department of Justice in a civil matter or a subpoena from the OIG in in an administrative matter or, or heaven forbid, a grand jury subpoena in a, in a criminal uh, enforcement matter, these of course are all reports of non-compliant activity that the organization ignores at significant risk. So, even something as uh, maybe as I'll use the word innocuous as a contractor request for information and and their review should be treated as a report of non-compliant activity and vetted accordingly by the organization and responded to with with the uh you know with the concern that you know that could be the makings of a case that ends up being treated for a greater level of liability either by DOJ or OIG or just through the normal courses of the contractor but still something that the organization needs to respond to well, it, it, there's a lot of eyes watching now and a lot of people with enforcement teeth, and it's clear that the stakes are much higher. Now, as, as I was reading through the report, one thing that stands out, at least to me, is co-pays, whether they were waived by drug companies or or providers. It seems to me that there's a warning there. A, am I right? Uh, yeah, th- there in fact has been an uptick in whistleblower cases based on the failure of organizations to uh, appropriately collect patient responsibility, deductibles and co-pays. And, and, you know, some cases that that are reported out there uh, involve fairly egregious activity that you could characterize 
as ignoring the obligation to uh, collect copays. But there are other cases out there where the provider uh, has made reasonable collection efforts as is contemplated uh, by the Medicare manuals and, and any case law that's out there, but they're still being uh, subjected to enforcement action and whistleblower cases alleging that whatever they're doing isn't enough. And, and it does require a fairly heavy lift to respond to those allegations and to try to to manage the risk of being involved in that liability. But that's definitely on the radar screen, at least for whistleblowers. And when those cases are brought to the attention of the Department of Justice or the OIG, they're really not in a position to ignore those types of allegations because it's such a fundamental part of the Medicare and Medicaid programs to, to have that, you know, patient responsibility included uh, with with the reimbursement uh, for the services. So good thing for compliance teams to make sure that they periodically monitor or ongoing monitoring and auditing to make sure everything's happening as it should. Now, yeah, well, yeah, let, let me say something about that too, Adam. So if you look at the manual, um, it, it would say that a reasonable collection effort would be something like attempting to collect the patient's copay maybe at their first visit or a subsequent visit, you know, when they come in the door, hey, your copay is X, uh, can you pay that now? Or if they can't or don't uh, pay a copay, sending out um, collection letters to try to recover it. Unfortunately, what happens is that uh, the patients, uh, particularly if you're in a, a challenged patient population, uh, they either can't or or have the inability to pay a copay, and then it becomes a write-off. And and so we've seen in the case as well. We think you need to do more than that. And you know, like, well, you need to reach out further. You need to make a a, a phone call directly to the patient to try to establish a patient plan. There's a lot of confusion out there as to what constitutes reasonable collection efforts, and it 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 hasn't been completely clarified by the courts or even CMS for that matter, or the OIG. And of course it creates opportunities for, for whistleblowers to make issues out of that. So it's definitely a compliance issue. It certainly sounds like it. Now, yeah. kickback seems just seem to never go away. Are there any signs compliance teams should be on the alert for? Well, I listen, I always say one thing about, you know, kickback risk or, or, or stark risk to, to compliance professionals. And, you know, you, you don't expect compliance professionals to sort of get in the legal weeds of the application of these laws because they're complicated, they're nuanced, not even seasoned lawyers, uh, you know, can always uh, get it right. So I, I have sort of a simple instruction for compliance professionals. If you're looking at a circumstance where on one hand, there's a potential source of business, and on the other hand, there's a potential recipient of that business, and there's a financial relationship between the two, direct or indirect, overt or covert, in cash, non-monetary, uh, cash, or in kind, non-monetary, then the next thing you should conclude is that it in some way implicates 
the anti-kickback statute and state law equivalents, and possibly even the Stark law and state law equivalents. And it is at that point that you refer it to competent counsel to assess what the application of those laws tell you about the circumstance. Is it a risk area? Do we fit into an exception or a safe harbor? What's the remedial action if that's necessary and, and, and address it accordingly? Uh, kickback cases are very popular with whistleblower lawyers because they're, they're difficult to defend completely and they usually set up a case uh, where either the government or if the government declines to pursue the matter, the relator, it sets up a situation where they can leverage the risk of defending a kickback case uh, to achieve a settlement and, um, and, and recovery of attorney's fees. So it's, it's been a popular basis for whistleblower cases. It continues to be, and it will be in the future. Good warning. Now, let's looking at the document as a whole, it seems to me that this can be a great tool for compliance teams when they're talking with recalcitrant managers about compliance risks. It's, it's filled with tales of practices that led to huge fines and, and even incarceration. Do you yeah. think that's a good strategy for compliance people? Well, so um, back in the mid-90s when... Um, the message by the government was that you know you need to uh, educate your board about compliance risk and and uh, fraud and abuse risk. Uh, many compliance professionals would um, uh, ask me and other lawyers like me to come in and address and prepare like a presentation to the board, a PowerPoint, and that presentation would inevitably include examples of uh recent settlements or cases that would be particularly relevant for that organization you know if it was a hospital or a health system and and then later uh where those cases involved individual liability uh you, you know you would point that out um you know i found that to be helpful but not conclusive um and and unfortunately for for many organizations, um, the value of an effective compliance program didn't hit home until they had to write a check to settle a whistleblower false claims act case. So, you know, I would answer your question this way. Yes, I think there's some value in continuing to educate boards about what the risks are if you're, if you're not equipped to handle these situations internally before they become an external risk and of course the cost in my experience if, if you give me a compliance situation that the organization can handle internally even if it requires a self-disclosure you're talking about expending you know one-third of the cost of what it would take to deal with that situation once it became an external matter a whistleblower case a DOJ investigation or otherwise. So, you know, the proof is really out there. It's just kind of getting your board and management to understand this isn't a remote liability. Uh, it happened. It's not a matter of if it's going to happen to your organization. It's when you're, 
if your program is effective, you're going to get a much better chance of dealing with this before it becomes an external matter, and it's, you're going to be able be in a much better position to manage the risk. Simple as that. Simple, but unfortunately, humans like to think, oh, no, it'll never happen here. Uh, yeah, that, too often that is an issue. Yeah. That is it. Absolutely. So finally, looking at the tea leaves here, what does this indicate may come next uh, as we move, I think, hopefully from a pandemic to an endemic health situation? Well, I, you know, first of all, the, the money that was spent during the pandemic uh, has developed a fairly significant inventory of what we call COVID fraud cases. Uh, those will be... Um, playing out over the years, just like uh, the money that was allocated to deal with the real estate crisis back in 2008 and 2009. Some of those cases are still pending. So we'll see that runoff for, for years. Uh, if there's money spent uh, uh, because of the, the demands or, or challenges of, of, the, of an endemic situation, that's federal money, then that particular exposure you know, will continue as something parallel to what we call our traditional uh, enforcement risks, kickback risks, medical necessity, improper claims, billing and coding type of thing. So. so much more to come. Well, Gabe, thank you as always for these insights. I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I'm Adam Turtletaup from SCCE and HCCA. I hope we're able to expand your compliance perspective.